Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFace podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 251, and today's guest is Slater Viktorov, founder and CTO of Indico Data. I'm always amazed when I talk to an entrepreneur who starts a company while in college. There's a lot going on during those college years in terms of academic and social experience. So it's impressive when they have the vision and maturity to embark on the adventure of building a business. And I find it even more impressive when the entrepreneur's company is working on hard tech and has legs beyond college, as in the case with Indico Data. Since it was founded while Slater was at Olin College of Engineering, the company has gone on to raise multiple rounds of venture funding, and their tech has evolved to being an enterprise solution for helping empower organizations' use of unstructured data. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like how training in mixed martial arts helped him with his career in entrepreneurship, Slater's decision to attend Olin and how it influenced his career to become an entrepreneur, a deep dive into Indico data, including how the idea came to fruition and the process of building the tech and getting the company started, the current stage of the company and growth plans ahead, Slater's role as an EIR at 406 Ventures and his experience as an angel investor, when it makes sense to hire an outside CEO for your startup, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, the VentureFizz Weekly Digest email is the must-subscribe email to keep you connected to the tech scene. You'll receive lots of information on companies, advice for your career, and other fun tidbits. Sign up at VentureFizz.com register. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Slater. Slater, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you because we've got a lot, a lot to cover here. Uh, you've been busy since going to Olin College of Engineering, which is absolutely one of my favorite schools. I got to know it probably like 10 years ago. We're going to talk about that school and why it's so special. But before we get into all that and the great company that you built coming out of that school, um, I, I learned that you were you, you had like a, a brief career in mixed martial arts, MMA fighting, which I'm like, wow, that's a good characteristic for an entrepreneur to build a company to take on heavyweights like a Google, IBM, Amazon Web Services, Microsoft type company. So talk about your experience there and those parallels. Absolutely. And I think this is something that I, I just have to say unabashedly, I, I love martial arts, right? I think that it's a, it's a kind of beautiful sport. I think that the way you get to know someone when you're fighting them is something that I actually uh, miss a lot nowadays. And, you know, I'll, I'll start off by saying, you know, I'm, I'm older and I'm a bit more frail and I'm out of shape and out of practice now. So I'm not, I'm not doing it anymore, but right. I think the, the most important thing, right. When I was really thinking about it, I think there's two notions, uh, you know, when you're fighting uh, in an MMA context or, or, you know, anything where you're doing a real full contact kind of sparring where you're, you're taking hits. Right. And I've never, you know, I've never gotten knocked out in a really serious, like go down to the mat, you know, get, get, right. you know, concussion or anything. I think, what I really realized, though, is when you look out around people in tech, and I learned this when I started asking if people were interested in fighting in a completely non-joking way, is that people in tech are really afraid of getting hit in the face, right? Uh, they really, really don't like it in a way that was actually really strange and foreign to me. And I think the thing for me that's the analogy to getting hit in the face, right, is that when you're an entrepreneur, you've got to realize that bad stuff is going to happen right? Like you're going to get hit, right? Not everything is going to go according to plan, right? You're going to have to change things. It's, you know, one of the reasons that people don't even write business plans anymore. Uh, you know, the, those famous words, everyone's got a plan until they got hit. It's that ability to operate in a situation where a plan's 
like you've got to be planning constantly, but you know that the plan is not actually what's going to save you, right? It's all about execution, right? And, you know, sometimes you've got to strategically take a hit, right? Um, and I think that being able to both grit it out on the entrepreneurship side is critical uh, and realizing that just because you've taken a misstep and just because you've taken a hit doesn't mean you're out of the fight. And I love that quote because it's uh, Mike Tyson's quote, right? So everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And, and I think that is the thing. And, uh, you know, like when you're up against other people that are as smart as you might even have more resources, maybe they're, you know, bigger than you are, maybe they've got more experience than you have. You've got to realize that uh, no matter how good you are at planning, right, no matter how good you are, you know, they, you know, they're bringing a lot to the table and something is not going to go your way. Right. Mm -hmm. So true. So true. All right. Let's rewind the clock. So where did you grow up and what were you like as a child? Oh gosh. I was, I was a difficult child, I think. Um, so I, I grew up in Los Angeles, but I actually split my time between, uh, Southern LA and the far Northern reaches of California in Humboldt County. Uh, so I would spend sort of winters and summers up in the Redwoods, and then I went to school down, uh, you know, in public schools, but in maybe a very strange, you know, magnet program as a part of the LA public schools. Uh, and, you know, the toughest part for me in high school, right, and, and I think a lot of people that come from more normal cities might not quite understand this, is just the incredible extent of LA sprawl. Uh, you know, I say I came from LA, that's not really a city the way that other places are cities. Uh, really, L.A. is this uninterrupted stretch of, you know, two, three hundred miles of civilization that stretches all the way from San Diego to Santa Barbara. And everything in between those two is L.A., right? And it's, you know, 30, 50 miles inland as well. So it's just this absolutely massive gargantuan space. So I went to school really far away from where I lived. Uh, and the public transit is also really bad. You know, I'm not 16. I don't have a car. You know, my dad is, uh, you know, kind of a lot of time, you know, very, very difficult to get me to school. So I had to wake up at 430 every morning to take public transit to get to get to high school. Um, wow. Well, so I already kind of let the gave the heads up that you attended Olin College of Engineering. Um, so were you already involved in that world in high school? Like, how did you even hear of Olin? Because it's this amazing college in Wellesley, Massachusetts, that I'm going to give a, a prop. If any entrepreneurs are listening to this and you're in the Boston area and you're looking for amazing, gifted students, they're in your backyard. <laughs> they're at Olin. And if you're not recruiting there, you're missing the boat because Google is Dropbox. Everybody's coming to the East Coast to, review, to recruit there. And if you're not, you're missing out. So anyways, uh, how did you even hear of that? Thank you so much for that. No, it's a great question. And, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I'm so happy that you have heard of it, right? Because it, it is a weird place, I think, even today. But you're right. The, the reputation has grown a lot since, you know, where it was back in the day. So I, I, I honestly, I barely remember where I heard of it. I remember I was principally interested in Cooper Union, right? Because, you know, when I was applying to schools back in 2010 and Olin was, you know, like just had its first graduating class, uh, you know, Cooper Union was way better known and I had no idea really what was going on uh, at Olin, right? I had never heard of project-based education, right? For me, and, you know, to the point of, you know, was I already in that world? I was a somewhat classic math and science kid, I would say. But really critically, I had never built anything, 
right? I had never worked on a team. I had not programmed a line of code in my entire life. I thought I was going to be a chemical engineer. Um, and the way that I saw school all through high school, right, because you've got these massive lecture requirements is that I was effectively forced to choose between doing school and learning. So to me, you know, all through through high school, you know, those were mutually exclusive uh, goals. And to me, Olin was the first place that ever convinced me that you could actually do both at the same time. But you know, to roll back the clock. At the time, I just heard project-based education. I'm like, I don't know, that sounds kind of fuzzy to me, right? Like I'm, I'm very into just like, I wanna do tests, you know, I wanna ditch every class and just like do the problem sets, do the tests. I thought that was, that was the kind of kid I was going to be. So I didn't even apply to Olin at the time thinking that was where I was going to go, right? I'm like, this is kind of an interesting one to round it out, maybe I'll give it a shot. But Olin has a really interesting admissions process and they have something called Candidates Weekend. And basically, if you pass sort of the academic portion of the application, and you know, I did that, they invite uh, you to the campus for one of three weekends to basically get to know the students there to figure out what it is that Olin is all about. And basically what they do is they have something called the design challenge. And I won't give too much away because they, they still do this, but basically they ask you to do an impossible thing with terrible materials, right? Mm -hmm. So our year, you know, you had to, coordinate this, uh, you know, contraption with a team that you weren't allowed to talk to, right, that had to take a cup of water and send it over to their half of the machine and take it back. Absolutely ridiculous and impossible. But the idea is you're working with a team and, you know, you've got to make this thing out of foam and duct tape and, and you know, chewing gum, right? And it's just the process of learning and making and building. And it's such an eye-opening experience. Um, so much so, Right. I was so convinced about project-based education by the end of that weekend, I actually withdrew my application to every other school. Um, so, you know, I went in being like, oh, you know, this will be fun. I'll head over to Massachusetts. I'll check some places out. And just something about Olin clicked. Um, and, and then I got rejected, um, obviously. <laughs> no, oh, you did? <laughs> yeah, I did. And then, you know, I pleaded with admissions. I'm like, you made a mistake. This is absolutely where I belong, right? I know this is the place for me. Uh, maybe I didn't understand that when I went into the interviews the first time around, but by the end of the weekend, you know, I really understood it. Uh, and they, you know, with some hemming and hawing, eventually said, okay, you're allowed on the wait list. And they've got a policy that if you're on the wait list, you can take a year off and then uh, go to school the next year and be guaranteed a spot. And that is what I did. Ah, very, very cool. All right, so you're attending Olin. Um, at what point did you come up with the idea? Cause you came up with the idea of your company Indigo at Olin. So, and this isn't like a, Hey, I've got an idea for a web app. This is unstructured data, machine learning type of thing. So it's not like something that was just like a, a whim of an idea. No. And, and, and it took a really, really long time. I think that's the, that's maybe the key here is I, I didn't even realize at the time, but Indico is fundamentally a very deep tech kind of company. It means it takes a really long time to build the technology out in an effective, cohesive way. So I would say Indico fundamentally started uh, with something that I said to my professor in 2012. That is the war is over, deep learning lost. Right. Very big statement. You know, I was a yeah. sophomore in college, so obviously I knew everything about the field at the time, right? You know, I had some <laughs> early successes. Um, and, and I was just very, very convinced, right? We, this was the heyday of statistical techniques, you know, using TFIDF and logistic regression, which are, you know, simple but incredibly effective statistical techniques, made me feel like a wizard, right? And so me and my co-founder started doing capital competitions together. And gradually, basically over the course of nine months, 
uh, the state of the art changed dramatically, right? My statistical techniques that I was so proud of went from being these, you know, incredible state of the art things that would outperform these deep learning techniques to being a distant second, right? And I scrambled for a long time. I really tried to push these techniques to their very edge. And then eventually I just said, you know, I, I was wrong. And that really was the genesis of Indico, was me realizing, okay, wait a minute, I missed something here, right? Deep learning is fundamentally capable of things that I didn't think were possible. Uh, and, you know, what I will say is that th there's a lot of people out there that maybe make a lot of noise, like deep learning is some panacea, and it's like magic AI Skynet stuff that's going to rule the world or whatever. Like, I am very, very much not in that camp. Uh, to me, and, and this was, you know, in, in a lot of ways, always the question, right? What is this good at? You know, this is the technological advance, right? So what does this allow us to get after that we couldn't do before? And really the problems that deep learning is very, very good at are these unstructured data problems. It's text, it's image, it's audio, and it's understanding how to interpret that data in a way that's really similar to how a human might look at it. And really importantly, it gives humans a way to understand and control and modify these algorithms and techniques in a way that, you know, really Really wasn't accessible to them before. Uh, and then really it was just trying to make that practical from there on out, but it took way longer and it was a lot harder than I thought. No, did you, how did you get the entrepreneurial bug? Did, was that something you were like, you know, at some point I want to start a company? Like, like how did you even get to that point of starting something? That, that's a, another great question. Yeah. When I, when I showed up at college, you know, I thought I was going to be a chemical engineer and I thought entrepreneurship was a euphemism for unemployment. Um, I came from LA, right? There is not an entrepreneurial scene in LA pretty much at all, right? You've got entertainment, but it, it's a completely different thing. Um, I got bit because there were some really competent entrepreneurs colon, right? Um, and, you know, there's a lot of questions about how exactly you facilitate entrepreneurship as a school. And, and I think that's actually a very, very hard thing to do. Um, what they did and what really worked for me, it's actually very simple. It's the startup career fair. Uh, and what they do is they have a bunch of startups come and just try to recruit students. And, you know, owners are very highly sought after, um, certainly in the software world and the PM world, right? So, you know, when you're talking about the seniors, you know, in November before they graduate, they've already been locked down, you know, with a six-figure Microsoft contract, right? Very, very kind of common situation. Um, but that's not true of everyone, right? And my, you know, first year and a lot of I think people's first year at school, they don't really know how to get a job. It takes them a little bit longer to really develop the skills they need to. I couldn't get a job out in November because I didn't know how to code in November, right? I still thought I was going to be a chemical engineer. I had to reorient, figure out a career fair. Okay, wait a minute. You know, chemical engineering really isn't the sort of future that I thought it was going to be, right? I found programming, I fell in love. And then several months later, too late for really the, the normal career fair, but I found, uh, you know, this startup, Alley that kind of took a shot on me. And Something was about a, was that a learning startup? Like yeah, e-learning yes. company. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Do you, did you know them? Well, Matt Kaplan was one of the, I think, executives. Oh. He had a product, maybe like he's a great product leader, uh, and he was working at Alleyoop for uh, a good stretch. But yes, I remember them. Oh, yeah. So yeah. So we were we were run out of Pearson, and you know, I was doing some some work with these folks, and it was just this very startup-y group. And it's hard to kind of say, but I got intoxicated by that idea that I could take a two pound piece of metal and build an empire out of it. 
right? Uh, it was just so incredibly empowering in between just being in that kind of ecosystem, seeing incredibly competent startups that are all around Boston, you know, going to hackathons and getting really familiar with this exercise of, I can actually build something, right? You know, this is this is in my capabilities. And, you know, once you, once you see that, right, once the curtain comes down and you realize there's no magic there and you can do it and the only thing stopping you is yourself, uh, you know, you can't stop at that point, right? I mean, something inside of me was not going to rest until I made a company and really committed everything I had to it uh, and, you know, saw whether or not I could make it work. And lo and behold. Right. And as you highlighted, this is very sophisticated, complex technology. So how did you get started with like the first initial use case and then, you know, getting someone, a customer, right? Like while you're, you know, just getting started, like how did that process begin? Yeah. So I think that we made the mistake that a lot of engineers make at first, which is this uh, build it and they will come notion. And we were a little bit of two minds, right? So the very, very first thing we did at Indico actually was we challenged each other to a bet. Uh, we were doing really well in these Kaggle competitions. People were reaching out. Do you want to do something? We said, we have no idea if there's something valuable here. So we said, if we can make $1,000 in the next two weeks, then we have to make a company. Uh, and you know that, that's how Indico came to be. But we, we went out and it was just the people that said, hey, you know, let's try something. Let's do something. We said, okay, sure. You know, we'll, we'll give you some hours. We'll give this a shot. Uh, just you know, give us some money. Uh, and we really didn't care about, you know, making the money, you know, work out as we were college students. We're just like, will people actually put their money where their mouth is? Um, and and that, that was the very start, right? I mean, it was taking on these contracts that were just just terrible, right? It's like paying us, uh, you know, a thousand bucks, two grand or something for what ended up being, you know, 250 hours of just like get this thing to work for a demo. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, like the economics were terrible, but they really helped us understand that there was a huge, huge, huge gap in between academia and actually developing these, this thing in, in the enterprise. Right. So we did actually the first couple of experiments here and we're like, OK, this is actually not ready. We need to take a step back, reexamine, ship this thing around. And then we took this very sort of PLG developer oriented kind of notion that we were going to put these libraries out and just have people pick them up. And people did pick them up, but we could never quite figure out how to turn that into money. Um, and that actually was really, really tough. You know, we were around at hackathons and, you know, we were speaking and people really, really liked us. But, um, you know, other than a couple of people, you know, nitpicking over the hundred dollars they spent in API credits over the weekend, right? We didn't, we didn't really have much of a customer base. And then really we did this big shift as, you know, I switched over from the CEO role to the CTO role into the enterprise world. And then we went back really to what looked a lot closer to the early days, but now with a huge amount of product and technology backing us up, which is stuff that didn't scale. We went out to the enterprises in Boston. We said, hey, we're down the street. Can we have lunch? Right. And the idea was that in those early days, right, you know, no one, no one's going to remember you in four years once you actually start going and, and this stuff matters. Right. So it's just like get your foot in the door and realize that there are people out there who will take a chance on a startup once you've actually got, you know, some headwind behind you. So that, that was just the sort of it. And then really the idea is, you know, once you've got your, your early customers, the first people that say, I'm going to take a chance on you, just do everything you can to make them happy. Right. 
and especially in enterprise software, the way that you really develop a product in my mind is you develop the thing the product will be used for, right? So you develop the service, right? And you offer it to these companies using your product yourself, dog fooding from day one, right? And then by the time that product gets good enough and useful enough, then you give that to your customers and let them use it directly. Um, but I think that's a, a good process. Yeah. And that, well, then at, at- I guess a couple of years into it, you were, you applied to Techstars and you were part of their program in 2015. Yes. Yep. So what did that experience? 2014. Okay. So what did that experience teach you? And then, um, you know, how helpful was that to open up the doors for funding? So I think the key lesson that Techstars, um, maybe not lesson, I think the key skill that Techstars exists to teach is how to sift through the river of advice that you will get as an entrepreneur, um, how to focus your time, right? And how to understand whether a meeting is actually going to be useful or not. Um, and that's Those really are three hard. powerful things. That's, those yeah. are three very, because time is everything. Advice, everyone's happy to give you advice. You just don't know if it's useful or not. Absolutely. And then, you know, it's just, being able to prioritize is so key. So, so talk about what you learned over those three important things. Yeah. And, and I, I will say part of the thing that's really important to note for Techstars is that because so much of what they do is get you connected to the local ecosystem, a lot of the learning actually happens outside of the class itself, right? It's in the follow-up in the months and years afterwards, right? It's kind of reflecting on, okay, what worked well there, what didn't. Um, and honestly, and, and this is, I think, really good for founders, but probably not, not so good for tech stars, is that a lot of founders only learn to really apply the stuff in their second company. Right. I think that's actually a kind of common pattern is to kind of take that learning. Maybe you, you screwed up a lot the first time around and then the second time you're really going to knock it out of the park. But um, for me, uh, particularly in Techstars, I think the most important thing I got out of it was recognizing that unless someone has really specifically been through your situation. Right. And I think that there's a, a bad impulse to optimize for the best possible credentials you can find over the most applicable applicable credentials you can find. And this is when it comes to mentors and investors, right? And advisors and employees, right? Is that uh, you don't necessarily want an employee who has spent 20 years at Google, even though they're probably a really, really good engineer, right? You know, and, or maybe you can bring that person in as engineer number 20, but you cannot bring that person in as engineer number two. Um, and when it comes to advisors, for instance, if someone has spent their entire career at companies that are three, four, 500 and up in terms of employees, they're not going to have a lot of useful information or input to a five person company. Uh, and I think that that's a piece of context that they're not going to be very aware of because almost no one has experience across this gamut of companies. People usually develop these lanes and actually have pretty narrow windows of experience, but they kind of analogize everything to their world. And it's very hard for people to identify their own blind spots. So you, when you're going out and asking people, you have to be able to put these themes together of, okay, you know, the big company people are saying this, or, you know, the deep tech people are saying this, right? Finding those themes. And that's a really, really helpful way to sift through the feedback. But I think that the very hardest thing for me to do when Techstar showed me that this is critical for a company is you have to be able to listen to someone who has, you know, credentials and accolades that you may never be able to earn in, you know, decades of work and realize that they're actually wrong about your business. 
right? Um, you actually cannot just listen to that person and do everything they say and expect that that will get you to a su successful outcome. And, and those were the biggest mistakes that I made in the early days. Yeah, and it's also hard to say no to like meetings was the other thing that you had mentioned where, you know, people are like, hey, let's get together. And like, you gotta be like, what's the purpose of this meeting and what's the potential outcome? And I, I remember I learned this early on. I think it was Dharmesh Shah who was just like, amazing and, and very tactful in his delivery like hey i'd love to but you know he just had this way of politely saying no that you know there's only so many hours in the day you can't just spend all day meeting with people for no purpose so um it, it just was fascinating so let's fast forward to where indigo is today so what like if you had to describe the company and what you do and like an example of a customer let's let's share that with the audience yeah absolutely so we are the unstructured data platform um, the way that I often describe us is an AI powered bionic arm for the modern knowledge worker, right? So, you know, this is applicable across a pretty wide array of areas, but to make the use case really tangible, let's talk documents. Documents are super, super hot today. Very, very common area for us. And let's think about contracts. So really the way that we're going to function is you might have a contracting department and their job is to do the occasional audit of your contracts to understand the variability across that. Or maybe there's new data regulation coming out and you've got to figure out, okay, in the 5,000 contracts we've got, what's our exposure? Which of these do we have to renegotiate and which are in a good situation? But you know, at the time, you probably didn't know that. These are new asks that are coming up. And that's, that's just one example. When you look across the enterprise, obviously there are a lot of functions that look like this, right, where you're interpreting documents, right, you're going through these unstructured repositories. But in this particular case, the process today is going to be incredibly manual, right? You know, this is usually people reading through a PDF on one screen, entering values into Excel on the other, right? Uh, it's highly individualized, right, which is to say that, you know, Jerome and Sue and Bob are all going to have a different conception of how to do this process, right? Um, and in some cases that might be all right in some cases it might be problematic but when someone when everyone is just entering things in their own excel spreadsheet you're not going to have that conversation right uh, and so there is inconsistency then in the process and what that finally breeds is risk and expense and errors right um and, and it's not that any of this is malicious it's that when you're looking at 70 contracts in a day you're going to misclick something right? You're going to mistype something. You're going to hit enter when you should have hit tab, right? It, it's just going to happen. Uh, and there's very little in the way of assistance for people today. So now imagining this in Indico, right? You take all the contracts, you load them in, and you basically go through and the same way that you would, you know, kind of scroll through, find the clause, say, hey, here's the relevant bit. You do exactly the same thing in our product, right? It's just in, you know, now a nice app instead of, a, you know, Acrobat and Excel on the right. You capture it in sort of this structured way. And then what's happening is that there's this AI agent in the back that basically is popping up and saying, okay, wait a minute. Uh, okay. Sue and uh, Jill, actually, you two are doing this in a different way. You know, here's some examples where you seem to have labeled things differently. You need to get on the same page about that, right? And then as people get to this better and more consistent understanding of the process, it starts to pop up and say, okay, guys, I understand this now. Let me, let me sort of take care of some of this work, right? Hey, you know, I know that usually you had to go through this whole contract now. Actually, I, I've sort of handled 90% of it for you, but, you know, I can't read this date in the upper right-hand corner. So could you, could you fix that for me so I can get this off the legal, right? Right? And it starts to sort of pop up and you, you know, the bionic arm analogy is very important because it's always the human in control of this It's a human AI system, right? This is not the AI ever operating in a completely, you know, sort of a unattended way, right? Because there's, there's always exceptions, right? There's always going to be weird cases and you've got to design for that as a first class citizen. 
but you are seeing people who can then do, you know, 10 times more than they could previously, right? You're seeing error rates that are actually dropping down. You're seeing audits that suddenly, you know, instead of being a $5 million expense that you do every three years, it's something that you can do kind of with the push of a button because you've actually got this trail that goes through the documents that says, here's where we got the value, as opposed to, you know, application showed up on Bob's desk. Bob says the value is X and that's the, all, all the transparency you've got into the process. So, you know, deep breath, but you know, those are, those are some examples of the sorts of things uh, that we do. And where's the company today in terms of, you know, stage funding, employee size, whatever details you can share. Yeah. Yeah. So we're about 70 folks right now, uh, obviously hiring uh, very aggressively. So that number is uh, viable to change based on your definition in the day of the week. Um, but we had a really, really great 2021. We're a series B stage company, which is to say that we had really strong evidence of continued product market fit and delivery of production value to our customers through 2021. The most important metric that I'd highlight, and this, this is a uh, public, we had a press release about this was a net revenue retention of 149%. Um, wow. yeah. So, you know, from our perspective, right, that was the most important thing for us at this stage, right? A lot of people in the AI space, it's actually not necessarily so difficult to get contracts signed if you're willing to promise a bunch of stuff. It is much, much harder to get those contracts to continue and then upsell because your customers say, yes, you know, this is in production, this is delivering value, this is what I expected to get. Uh, and then, you know, in a field where it's not strange to see products out there that might have a renewal rate of 30% after year one, you know, we're just incredibly proud of this, uh, you know, not just the 150%, you know, net revenue retention, but also we've got a production success rate of, you know, upwards of 95%, which, uh, you know, compared to an average in the industry of 11%. So we're just uh, incredibly happy with all of the progress we've made through 2021. Yeah. Cause I would think in the industry and what you're doing, that there's a lot of companies that are out there promise over promising and under delivering based on what the reality of their platform can actually do. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. And I think one of the big problems that people don't realize is that it's a fundamentally different thing to solve a specific problem than to solve the general problem. Right. So invoices is a great example. It's actually really, really, really trivial to build something that can, you know, extract from a particular format of invoice. Right. That's like, a, you know, a high schooler in you know two or three hours can put together something that works on this format of invoice. Right. No matter how many times you do that, though, you will never solve it for all invoices. And I think that's something that people don't really understand is that they usually understand, OK, I can build it for this one. I can see the solution for this one invoice. And I believe that if I do that enough times, eventually I will have everything covered. Right. They don't realize that the scope of the variability, right, the rate of change, right, the inconsistency in messaging actually makes that, uh, if not literally impossible, you know, impractical for all uh for all intents and purposes, right? It, you know, it's one of the reasons why when you look at the historic cost to get after these use cases, people are quoting, you know, $10 million uh, because this is the way you're doing it, right? If you get after and say, hey, I'm going to try to build a template for every single invoice on the entire planet, uh, you quickly, you know, rack up thousands and thousands of hours. And it means there, you know, no one spends $10 million a year on invoices, right? So it just doesn't make sense. Uh, and now with these newer techniques, right, where you can actually get after this general problem, again, in a fundamentally different way, that's what people really need now is something that isn't a, a vendor delivering kind of a handful of templates. It actually really importantly, vendors 
don't update their models quickly enough uh, to get after the rate of change that people see in the real world. Because it takes all of 30 minutes for me to change my template, right? And it might take you six months to engineer a new release and get it out to me in the software lifecycle, right? Uh, once it's all got all the way from end to end. So my, my personal belief is that when you look at the products that people should be adopting today, it's things that need to be putting this capability in the hands of the enterprise. You know, huge fans of these notions of uh, citizen developers and citizen data scientists. I think everyone really needs to be oriented around how do we help everyone build these intelligence systems, right? And, and, and now I think that people have kind of assumed that that is inaccessible as a foregone conclusion and said that AI will always be something, you know, built by PhDs in the corner, right? Now, you highlighted before that you are now the CTO. Uh, at what point in time did you make that decision? Like, okay, I needed to bring in someone else to be the CEO of this company because that's the role you were in. And how did you go about that selection process of the, you know, the person that was going to lead the company? Yeah, so there there's a long uh you know a long history here but i think the most important piece right is that i realized that indico needed to be in a different position than it was uh and it was a developer-centered company we were doing this very you know again product-led growth go to hackathons be very charismatic I was, I was very good at that it needed to become an enterprise software company and i was not the ceo for that frankly right you know very very different kind of motion than what we were attempting before and I, it's actually, there's a, there's an interesting kind of equivalence where the CEO of a developer company, right, is very comparable to the CTO of an enterprise software company. So that translation was more or less straightforward, but the process of finding a CEO, much harder, right? I would think, uh, yes. I, yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm a technical enough guy. I've got a bunch of friends that have gone through this process. And, and frankly, for a lot of them, it doesn't work out. Uh, for Indico, it worked out really, really well, I think, for a couple of reasons. Um, number one, I was pushing for this very actively. Um, I was driving the process, right? This was not a case where investors were stepping in and saying, hey, you're screwing up as a CEO. We need to bring someone to take this over. Not the case. I just really realized that I was not the CEO that Indico deserved. And even if I could figure out how to take the next couple of steps, I wasn't setting Indico up for success, right? Um, and so we we retained a formal firm to do this executive search, and you know, and I, and I don't know what to say other than we got lucky, right? You know, it, it's kind of this long series of coincidences where you know I met Tom. There was an immediate kind of warmth and connection in the room. Frankly, you know, we got along very very well. He had this product mindset and deep perspective engineering and understanding of how difficult the unstructured problem was. And we just got to do all of this great ideation sort of through the summer when Indico was a little bit in this no man's land where we weren't ready to hire a CEO. We were still figuring out what the future was and he wasn't ready to take a job either. Um, but we got to really understand how we how each other you know thought and worked together. And we built a really compelling vision of the company that was just so good that we we had to build it together. Um, and I think that every part of that process from, again, me driving it to coming up with a shared vision of the company before he even started, right, it was critical to the whole thing working out. And yeah, I don't know. A big part of it is luck. I think I probably could have made, made a mistake, uh, but I'm lucky that Tom's just a great guy. All right. So the other things that you're involved in, uh, so you're an angel investor 
and you also work with uh, 406 Ventures. So, so talk about your experience in the investing world and how you got involved and you know, when you are making angel investments, what you look for in terms of those investments. Yeah, absolutely. So, I, you know, I got sucked in by way of our investors. Uh, 406 is the lead investor of Indico. And obviously, uh, Techstars Boston also has a really active community for advising and investing. So I've gotten sucked in through a couple of different paths that way. Um, 406, my, my main role really as an EIR is both helping them to think about the directions that the world's moving in, you know, what the theses of tomorrow are going to look like, doing technical diligence for companies, and also making it clear to companies that, hey, there's some really sharp people in the 406 portfolio, and if you kind of come join the team, right, you're going to have some great people to bounce ideas off of, because that, you know, that's also one of the really big poles of an investment company. Um, for me, though, really my focus in all things, right, and this is whether I'm angel investing personally or doing technical diligence on the 406 side, right, it all has to do with realism um, and how quickly technical founders are willing to be honest with me about what they've built and what they haven't. Um, and I think this is something that a lot of tech founders realize, a lot of VCs realize, but a lot of people have trouble sort of uh, cutting through, right, which is that VCs, as a general rule, uh, cannot understand what you've built, right? It, it's not a good idea to go talk to a VC about all the cool stuff that you've done on the technical side, except in the very, very rarest of cases, right? Um, however, there's a very big difference between we've got real technology, right? We're, we're very, very competent engineers, and we also understand how to explain this to a non-technical audience. And we are selling snake oil, right? And we only understand how to sell, uh, sell this to a non-technical audience. And when you actually look at what's under the hood, it's not really, uh, you know, something that, that aligns with the representations that we've made. So what I'm really looking at is, is there a technical advantage here, right? And, and what that boils down into in a lot of ways is, is frankly courage, right? I think that it's very easy for technical founders to feel um, discouraged, right? To feel that no one's really going to appreciate the technology, right? It's not going to matter. And that they won't necessarily feel, again, sort of the courage or the bravery to go out to the bleeding edge and develop there, right? I think you see a lot of technical founders that get too caught in this notion of just like MVP, MVP, MVP. And, and, and that's very important. You know, there's a time and place for that, right? And, you know, getting a minimum viable product is definitely a critical art in and of itself. But you also have to be able to recognize the big strategic technical bets that you're going to make. Right. You've got to put together your own theses in terms of what talent am I going to be developing? Right. And as I am developing this MVP, what am I really testing about the technical feasibility here? Right. What's the purpose of this MVP and what does V1 look like? Um, so those are really the questions that I'm asking. Right. I think the most important thing for me is that, you know, I, I don't have an opinion on whether deep learning is the right technology for you or not. Um, you know, or whether, you know, Bayesian solutions are a better solution for you or not, or whether an expert system is a better solution for you or not, right? But you've got to be able to defend your point of view, and you have to be able to understand all of the uh, alternatives. So one, one of the quickest ways to make me upset is if you start walking on the phone, right, and, and making a bunch of assertions about what deep learning can and can't do, because you're trying to be super contrarian, right? But, you know, none of the statements you're saying are actually accurate. You know, and I, I'm one of the guys that's going to call you out for that immediately. And you've got really one one shot, right? Because I understand that you know 
sometimes that bluster is a part of the pitch and that's okay, but uh, I don't have a lot of patience for it. And so, you know, if you course correct after the first time, I'm not going to hold it against you. Um, but, you know, some people will just do it again and again and again and do this like, oh, we've got magic AI sort of pitch and not actually uh, dive into the details. And, and I think that really hurts them. Definitely. Okay. So you started the company as we highlighted already in college. So other than the alley-oop, you don't really have you know, any, you didn't, you haven't had any like first jobs out of college. Right. So, uh, true. <laughs> so what, what would you tell your younger self, you know, before starting a company, like if you were doing it all over again or telling, you know, a relative of yours or a friend. I, so maybe I'll split those up. I think that, uh, if I am telling a relative or a friend, the most important thing to realize is it's much harder than you think. Um, money is not a good reason to do it. Right. And just make sure it's something that you really, really love. And it's something that, you know, if you're going to work at this thing uh, for, you know, minimum wage for, you know, 10 years, um, you have to be able to see that as a win because you got to work on the thing that you love for 10 years. Right. So really important mindset. Right. I think if you don't approach it that way, it's going to be very, very hard to be successful. I think in terms of telling myself and I, I think that I held to this in some ways, but I should have, I should have been even better about this, um, is really recognize your weaknesses. Uh, for me, you know, I'm, I'm very, very good at painting the vision. I'm a great, you know, pitch master. I am not good at consistency, right? I was very, very weak at like, get all the metrics, right? Every month I, you know, it, it, you know, getting all of these consistent cadences that are really, really important for a CEO and very easy to compensate for that. Right. But I think that one of the things that's really important in the early days of a startup is just very aggressively recognizing, okay, where am I good enough at something that I can continue to grow and it'll be all right? And where am I so far behind? I need to find someone to help supplement my skills immediately because this is detrimental to the business. Right? And I think I could have uh, been even, even more active about leaving my pride behind uh, immediately because, again, I, I think that pride and ego, they're just, there's really no space for that in making a, a company. All right. Top three apps you can't live without. Kindle, Kindle, and Kindle. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I love reading. I'm absolutely addicted to my Kindle app. I'm, I'm going through the expanse and I'm, I'm loving it. I mean, I, I productivity apps are, are very good. Like, don't get me wrong. Like Slack and Gmail and my calendar are critical. Um, but outside of, you know, the things that are just like the desktop equivalents, I have to say, yeah, the Kindle app, it keeps me going. <laughs> That's great. I was laughing because um, I bet you if I went through the archives of the VentureFist podcast, when I asked that question, I would say the most common answer I get is Slack, email, and my calendar. Because <laughs> it's just like the lifeblood of an entrepreneur. And, and that is fair. So I, I'm, I assume that as a foundation for sure. Like, you know, frankly, yeah, I, I think that probably in terms of screen time, Slack, Gmail, and calendar take up maybe I'll, I'll say 80% of all the screen time. And then, and yeah. then, uh, you know, Kindle is 19% and whatever Uber is the last 1%. All right. Uh, podcast or book recommendation, you know, it doesn't have to be business or entrepreneurship. It can be, but it could be something, you know, fiction or, you know, then I'm just going to shout out the expanse, you know, yeah, okay. uh, it's like the Amazon series, I think, you know, plus and minuses, I'm just starting to go through that. But the book is incredible, or rather the book series, I've just started getting through book two, there's 12 books in the series. And it just, it just keeps getting better. I mean, it's, it's really, it's really amazing. All right, what else do you like to do outside of work? 
Uh, well, we talked about mushroom foraging. Uh, you know, that's a huge one for me. Well, um, that was that was before we started recording. So I think we got to pl- clue the audience into your interest there because that's that is interesting. Yeah. Okay. So my my life basically is oriented around you know what can I do in a forest. Uh, so you know the my my trifecta is writing, rock climbing, and mushroom foraging. And I think that's basically <laughs> the perfect life. Um, I, I, you know, I think the thing that was incredible to me, I just was, uh, lucky out on a rock climbing trip, you know, happened to find an absolutely massive, you know, like 10, 20 pounds of hen of the woods, just growing around the base of this big Oak tree, uh, up in New Hampshire. And I, I knew basically nothing at the time, but just to, you know, give the, you know, comparison. So it's something that someone can, uh, you know, think about It's like, you're, you're out, you know, on a hike. And you find, you know, five pounds of, you know, high quality Wagyu steak right on the side of the road, right? It's just, it's crazy, right? Because these are things, they're, they're ephemeral, right? This thing is going to last for, for two days, right? And it is, I mean, it is delicious, right? I mean, if you don't like, if you think you don't like mushrooms, let me, let me put it that way, right? Um, then you are mistaken. Uh, I think that for a long time, I had this notion that mushrooms were just, you know, the slimy things in soup, right? They're just those white button mushrooms, maybe portobellos, but there is a huge world of mushrooms out there, things that you would never even recognize as a mushroom, things like chanterelles and, and lion's manes, right? Um, you know, turkey tails. And I don't know, I, I think that that is a pandemic trend that's here to stay. Uh, and I think that, you know, once you start really looking for it. It's the kind of thing that you, you see everywhere. You know, every, every forest is filled with mushrooms, even if you didn't notice it before. It's got to be careful. Know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to be a poisonous <laughs> mushroom. <laughs> yeah. You know, this was something that I, I thought was really interesting because I had exactly the same thing. And I didn't realize the U.S. Um, is extremely mycophobic. There's a term for this, like mycophobia, you know, afraid of mushrooms. Because we don't feel the same way about leaves and, and berries and stuff, right? Um, and now that I've started learning a bit, leaves and berries are way more dangerous, uh, right? Okay. Like, cause the thing is like, you look at a mushroom and mushrooms are with, you know, maybe a couple of exceptions. They're extremely distinct, right? A chicken in the woods, it's like a huge orange fan of shelves sticking out. It, it doesn't look like anything else in the world. Right. But, you know, little red berry on the edge of a leaf, it's like, oh, well, are those leaves pinnate or lenticular? Right. Is that is that a serrated edge? Are those groups of three or groups of four? Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. It's winter. Are, are those are those cream colored flowers or white flowers? Right. 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 Um, right. And, and I think like having that comparison point really made me feel a lot more comfortable. And, and I think also this notion, like I had the idea that if you eat a poisonous mushroom, like you just die. Like, yeah. you know, well, one that's the perception they give you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it turns out that's, that's just basically not the case. Um, a very, very few poisonous mushrooms at all. Uh, actually, the vast majority of them are just like, they're, they're not tasty, right? So it's much more common for a mushroom to be inedible and just taste sort of woody than actually be poisonous. So that's A. Uh, B, even the poisonous ones, the vast majority of them not going to kill you. They're just going to make you throw up, right? They'll give you an upset stomach, right? Um, there's like a, there's basically like two or three mushrooms in the world that actually look sort of like something that you could conceivably eat and taste good and actually, you know, will kill you a couple of days later. Um, and so, you know, there are a couple, absolutely. And, and you've got to be comfortable uh, recognizing those and doing the tests that you need to do, right? Like absolutely go with a mushroom expert because, you know, like uh, 
it might be a rare mistake, but you only have to make it once, right? Right, exactly. Um, so yeah, but I, I think having the comparison point of like leaves and, and berries and stuff, they're actually a lot safe. You know, I would recommend mushroom foraging, you know, a hundred times over going and foraging for for leaves and berries for kind of a beginner because you're a lot less likely to go uh, sideways. Yep, no, it makes sense. So disclaimer statement, make sure you know what you're doing so that yes. there's no harm, no harm done. Bring but, an uh, expert with you. Bring an expert with you. Yes. Um, well, Slater, thanks so much for taking the time for walking us through your backgrounds, all the great things that you've been up to, uh, you and the team at Indigo, as far as building a great company, all the great advice that you shared and uh, just the overall great story. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a total pleasure. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.